I've entitled my message today, The, the Problem of Pain. And um, these last couple of years have been tough for everybody. I think there's been a lot of isolation. There's been a lot of loneliness, a lot of pain. There's been a lot of death that has occurred in these last couple of years. Uh, and I began to think back just a little bit about the, the different things that, that I get to encounter as a pastor, um, as I'm trying to minister to families that are in pain. Uh, I'm a chaplain with the fire department and also with the police department. And uh, I think sometimes they're going to start nicknaming me uh, Dr. Death because they just call me when there's been a fatality. They call me when there's been a death. And uh, sometimes I get to see the worst of, of those situations. And uh, I was thinking back just about some of the, the, the pain and the things that I have witnessed over these last couple of years. Um, we had a young family who sent their daughter to spend the night at a friend's house. And uh, mom sent her. They spent the night. Mom didn't know the next morning that the parents of that child would give their keys to an underage driver and put their daughter in the back seat. That car flipped, and that daughter, who was supposed to be spending the night at a friend's house, was killed. And to see the pain of those parents was almost unbearable. Um, Many of you know we had three ladies killed right here in our field, uh, hit by an 18-wheeler, and uh, left their home in South Texas and came to the casino to enjoy a night of fun, they said, and then uh, didn't see a truck coming, and they were hit and instantly killed. Um... I've been on scene with the fire department where we had an 18-wheeler that burst into flames and the driver died literally with his hands on the steering wheel as his truck exploded. Um, Just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, got called to a scene where a young lady had overdosed. Um, Her 12-year-old brother found her dead in her bed. When we questioned him about relatives and who he could call to come and pick him up because he was now alone, His story was that his dad tried to commit suicide and was brain damaged and was in an institution. His mom was in the psych ward at Memorial Hospital. And his grandmother, he didn't have any idea where she was. And that night I watched as his 12-year-old witnessed his sister, his only protection, his only refuge, die of an overdose. And then to say, I have no one to call. The pain of that young boy. Uh, Last Sunday afternoon, we got a call that a one-year-old drowned on his birthday in the bathtub. And to be at the hospital with that mom and dad uh, as they could not catch their breath. Pain is real. Suffering is real. And it is all around us. And in each and every one of those instances, the question is asked, why? Why? Why is it that people have to suffer? Why is it that it had to happen to me or to my family or to somebody that I know or somebody that I love? In the moment of suffering, it it all seems so senseless. It seems so useless. It seems pointless. And we wrestle to make sense with suffering and why it would come our way. Skeptics would say, well, if God is so loving and he is so good, then why does he allow suffering in our world? Others would say, well, if God's so powerful, then why doesn't he just put a stop to suffering and and make life just go smooth and make it go well? The disciples of Jesus also wrestled with this same question. Our text this morning is John chapter 9. And I'm going to cover part of it this morning, and I'll try to come back next week and grab the second part of this passage. But today, I just want to look at the first seven verses of John chapter 9. 
It's a story you're probably very familiar with. It's a story of a man who was born blind, and Jesus comes, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go to wash. He washes, and he is given his sight back. But in the midst of this, the disciples ask the same question that we ask in the midst of suffering. They walk up, and they see this man who has been born blind, and they want to know why. Why was he blind? Let's read this together, okay? In, in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, As he passed by Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. So this is a guy who's never seen. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day, because night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now we're told a little bit later on in the story that that took place on the Sabbath day. It was a day of worship, a day when the Jews would cease from all their work and would, would honor God and, and work um, uh, to, to worship the Lord. So here we see the disciples are wondering, Lord, why is this man born blind? Is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And you think that's kind of a silly question. Did he sin? He was born blind. But there were rabbis in that day that taught you could sin in the womb. That's crazy, but there were some that taught that. And so here's the disciples trying to make sense of suffering. They're trying to figure out how suffering comes about, why it comes about. Why is this man suffering? Who sinned? Whose fault is it that he suffered? And in this story, we see two false understandings of suffering. And then Jesus comes back and gives us a biblical understanding of suffering. The two false views of suffering that we see here are are really uh, packed together in this question that the disciples ask. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And so what we see in this is two false views of why suffering takes place. One of these views will lead to, to pride, and the other one will lead to a critical spirit. Both of those ways are unacceptable, and both of them are unusable by God. Let's look at the two ways that many people in this world, and when I say people in this world, it's really people in the church, because people in the world will say there is no God, so suffering doesn't make sense, and there's no sense in trying to make sense of suffering, because it's just a random act. But those of us who have faith in God, we seem to struggle more with suffering, because we do believe that God is good, and we do believe that God is all-powerful, and we do believe that if God wanted to, God could step up and stop suffering. We believe that. We believe that God could just speak the word and cancer would be eliminated. That God could speak the word and car wrecks would stop. That, that God could do something and all these things could go away. So if you believe in God, you're going to struggle more with suffering than maybe somebody who doesn't even believe in God. Because they just think it's just random. It's just karma. It's just stuff that happens. But those of us that believe in a powerful God, a loving God, suffering is not that simple for us. So here's the, the disciples who, who are believing in God, who are following Jesus, who are trying to make sense of Jesus. And they're wrestling with this question, why would God allow somebody to be born blind? Now, in their mind, there was two ways of thinking about it. 
either he sinned and did something bad or his parents sinned and did something bad because in their mindset, the way that things worked is you do good, you get rewarded good. You do bad, you suffer the consequences. That's the parenting model that a lot of people have adopted. That's, that's, the, that's the view of Scripture that a lot of people in the Old Testament would have. And, and, and they would take God's promises that he made to the nation of Israel. Nation of Israel, keep your eyes on me, follow me, do what I ask you to do, and things will go well for you as a nation. And they began to apply that to individuals and say, okay, so if I do good, remember the goodness gospel we've talked about the last several weeks? If I do good, then great things are going to happen. And if great things aren't happening, then it must mean that I'm not doing something right, that God's mad at me. So these guys ask these questions, and, and there's two different directions that it can go here. One, one, this is come back on two different tracks, I guess we could say, that, that their, 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 their reasoning follows. The first track is what we're going to call the anger track. I'm hurting, and somebody else is to blame. Here's a man that's hurting. It must be his parents' fault. They've done something wrong. They sinned, and that's why this man was born blind. Now, they could go two different directions. The the parents sinned, and the son suffers because of that. Or it could be the parents sinned, and God's punishing them by giving them a handicapped child. There's some people that that adopt that philosophy today. They see a child who's got a little bit of a a struggle, and they go, oh, those parents must not have... Must not have done something right. They must have made God mad. God gave them a a, a, a a child with a challenge. So they must have done something wrong. I'm hurting and somebody else must be to blame. Did his parents sin? The disciples want to know. The problem with the anger track is this, that it leads us to blame. It leads us to a place of bitterness. It leads us to this, this spirit of unforgiveness and resentment against those who have harmed us. And it leads us to this place that we want vengeance. We want to make it even. You hurt me, you sinned, and it cost me, so I want you to pay. We live in a society that believes in that. You cause me harm, I'm going to sue you, and I'm going to get my stuff back. You cause me harm, and I'm, I'm going to see to it that you, you know, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's where we live. So the first track is the anger track. I'm hurting. It's somebody else's fault. The second track that they take is the guilt trap. The guilt track, I guess I could say. And that is this. Or did he sin? Is it his fault? Now, it sounds strange because he was born blind, so how could he sin before he was born? But they're, they're, the disciples are trying to make sense of this. And sometimes when we wrestle with things, our thinking doesn't always make sense. And, and so they ask the question, is it something that he did? And, and some scholars say, well, Jesus, God was just looking forward in this, in this soon-to-be-born child's life and goes, yeah, right there, he's going to do something really bad, so I'm going to go ahead and punish him now. Some rabbis in that day taught that, that God would look ahead, and if he saw that you were going to be messed up, selfish, sinful, then he'd go ahead and punish you before you were born. And that's why there was handicapped children. And that's why there were people that were born blind. Guilt says, it must be my fault. I must have done something wrong. You ever encounter suffering in your life? And the first two thoughts are, who did this to me? Or, look what I did to myself. Oh my gosh, God must be mad at me. I had a flat tire. God must be mad at me. My, 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 my money's disappeared. God must be mad at me. Life has not gone as I thought it should go or as I think I deserve. 
God must be mad at me. So the disciples asked those two questions. Did, did his parents sin? Is there somebody over there we can blame? Or, or is it something this man did that we can, we can put the blame on him? But, but either way, both of these tracks look at, at putting the blame somewhere, either on somebody else or upon the individual himself. What's even more devastating is that some folks will combine both false beliefs. I'll give you one example. A child who watches their parents fuss and fight and eventually divorce may have anger in their heart toward their parents for putting in the position that they're in where they have to pick between a mom and a dad. But then some kids go even farther than that and don't just want to blame mom and dad for where they're at, but then try to assume part of the guilt themselves. Well, I could have done more. I should have, I should have done this, and, and I could have kept mom and dad. If I just wouldn't have smarted off that one time that dad got so mad, then, then, then maybe they wouldn't have divorced. And, and they carry guilt from both directions. They, they, they think, well, it's, it's their fault, yes, and I'm mad at that, but it's my fault, too. I could have done more to hold mom and dad together. Some folks combine those things, and that's just one example of how that, that might happen. But Jesus comes back and says that both of these answers, both of these presuppositions that they have are wrong. They're not biblical. They're not from God. They are presupposing something that was wrong in the beginning. They suppose that because the man was born blind, that somebody must have sinned. It was either his parents or it was him. That, that his blindness was a result of one of their sins. And that's not always true. And Jesus wants to make that clear in this passage. You see, in, in, in this situation where they're at, their, their presupposition has the underpinning of a belief that says this. It says that, that, that I am good and that God owes me a pain-free life until I do something bad. That's the underpinning of this. It, it's this idea that I'm naturally pretty good. And so I don't deserve what's just been given to me. Now, that child that was the man that was born blind could say that. I was born blind before I even had a chance to mess up. I don't deserve this. His parents could say, look, we're good people. To our knowledge, we haven't done anything to tick God off, and now he gives us a a blind child. And and so the underpinnings of this, and this is where this, this presupposition begins to fall apart, is I'm good and God owes me. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, just be honest with yourself. God, I don't deserve what's coming my way. I go to church, I tithe, I give, I speak kind words, I try to do my best. Lord, I don't deserve what I'm going through or what my family's going through or what my grandchild is going through. I don't deserve this, God. We're good people. I was told this just a couple weeks ago by a lady who was going through some, some grueling pain. She says, I don't understand this stuff. I'm a good person, and bad stuff keeps happening in my world. The same attitude comes through in the question that people ask so often. Why do bad things happen to good people? You ever been asked that? Have you ever asked that? I think we probably all have. Why do bad things happen to good people? And, and, and that those, that even that question falsely assumes two things. It falsely assumes that suffering is always bad. And it falsely assumes that people are naturally good. Both assumptions are false. 
Suffering is not always bad. And people are not always good. In fact, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So Jesus says, you guys are starting with a false assumption. And your assumption says there's, there's a problem, and that, that problem was created because either this, this guy's parents sinned or he sinned. And Jesus says, you got that wrong. The fact that this man is blind does not mean that he or his parents are, are directly responsible for his blindness. Now, in one sense, sin is the culprit. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. God's placed Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, in a perfect garden. He's created them to to be in perfect fellowship with him. And Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they turn away from God. And and sin enters into this world, and and the, the, the universe that God created is marred. It's under a curse. It's not functioning the way God designed for it to function. So yes, sin is the ultimate culprit. But there's a difference between sin in general and sin specific. That if there were no sin, there would be no sickness, there would be no death, there would be no cancer. There would be none of that stuff if there were no sin. And there's coming a day where there will be no more sin. And that's the place that we long to be. But in the meantime, we are stuck in a fallen world that's living under a curse that came as a result of sin. But, but, but not every illness is a direct result of my sin or your sin. Does that make sense? So if you have a flat tire tomorrow, you can't say, oh, man... God, did I, I, I should have stayed one more minute in my quiet time. Now you're going to cost me 10 minutes on the side of the road. Some people do that. Oh, I must have ticked God off. That's, that's not, Jesus said, that's not, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not proper. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this relationship between sin and suffering is not simple or simplistic like some people want to make it. It is complex. It is mysterious. It doesn't always make sense in the moment. And and we can't just reduce it to an anger track or a guilt track. Anger that somebody did something against me and and, and they owe me. Or I did this to myself and, and, and I ought to be ashamed. Jesus says there's a third option. This is the biblical solution. Look what he says in verse 3. They ask the question, verse 2, who did this? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answers, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, the answer is neither. It's not guilt and it's not blame. But this occurred, Jesus says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here's what Jesus is saying. Not all suffering is senseless. Not all suffering is is wrong. Not all suffering is useless. Now, we would prefer to have a life with no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more... We would prefer that, and that day is coming, but it's not here yet. And so what Jesus is saying is that that this is a complex thing. Jesus is saying God is working through your suffering. God is working through a process we call providence. And providence has been described to me as this, as God's hand in the glove of history. And it's God's invisible hand that is working in ways that we cannot always see. Now, these gloves have been used a lot. And guess what? They're getting a little worn out. And you know what? Sometimes in providence, God does give us a peek at what's on the inside. He does let us see his hand. But most of the time in suffering and in pain, it's just the hand of God that's moving the glove of history. 
And that's called providence. And it's God working behind the scenes, doing things that we cannot see and that we do not understand in the moment. It's God's, it's God's hand inside the glove of history, moving and turning the hearts of kings, moving and, and turning the hearts of people, doing a work on the inside that then becomes evident on the outside. And that's the providence of God. And Jesus says that's what we see happening here, that this man was born blind in the providence of God. By God's design, for God's purpose, that God might display his works through him. Now, in this process, Jesus is going to be talking about the work of God. In fact, in in the verses, he says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And, And he says, we need to work while it's day because night is coming. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the work of redemption. And so what Jesus is actually saying in this passage is this. He's saying, this man was born blind so that the work of God's redemption could be broadcast and be made known in a, in a bigger way than it could be if this hadn't happened. The, the, the work of redemption is going to be seen in him. God is working through providence. He's working in a way that sometimes we can't see. So why was this man born blind? You might ask, why, why do I have to suffer? Why was I given the parents that I got? Man, I drew the short straw there, some of you would say. Some of you have had parents that, that just to be honest and to be nice or were just ungodly. And that's the nicest way to say it. And you might look at my parents and go, Rob, you were so blessed. To which I would say, you weren't in my house. I was really, really blessed. Listen, guys, I could not ask for better parents than what God gave me. I do not have one complaint. I do not have one criticism of the way my mom and dad raised me and loved me. But some of you can't say that. And you go, why did I get stuck with those parents? That was, that was not my fault. That was not my choice. God picked that. Why? And Jesus would say, so that the work of God might be displayed through your life. To show the world that you could start with this and end up with that, that's only by the hand of God. To show that we could start here and somehow end up here, and I can't take credit for that, that's the hand of God. And that displays the hand of God even through our suffering. Why was I born in a poor family and not a rich family? Why couldn't my parents send me to college when everybody else's parents could afford to send them? You know, we ask all these questions. Why, why, why? Why do I have the struggles that I have when everybody else just seems to have it good and easy? Why was that disease imposed upon my family and take my loved one away? Why do disasters, why, why, do, why do hurricanes have to come through Louisiana? And God says, even through your suffering, I can gain glory. And I can do the work of redemption even through the suffering, if you will allow me. Jesus' answer is the answer that nobody expected. You see, the teaching and the thought of that day was... Somebody sinned, somebody screwed up, and somebody's got to pay. It's either the man or it's his parents, but somebody messed up. And do you know who always has that answer? 
those who hadn't faced suffering yet. Those who haven't faced unjust suffering, unmerited suffering, those who haven't had the child that was blind or handicapped or challenged, those who weren't married to somebody that decided to cheat and to leave them even though they were faithful to their spouse. It's those who haven't suffered that have these easy answers. But it's those who have suffered, who have come to Scripture and let Christ show us through the Scriptures what suffering is really all about. So Jesus answers in a way that nobody expected. They gave him two options, and he says neither. There's a third, and that is that God works. In fact, his answer, the answer that Jesus gives here, if we stop and think about it in the historical context of this moment, now, we, we are farther down the road, maybe, because of Scripture. But up to this point, nobody would have imagined that anybody would have laid this at God's doorstep. It would have been heretical for somebody to say this if it had not been a member of the Trinity saying it. Their question is, who sinned? Who screwed up? Who did bad? This man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. This was God. What? You're going to lay this at God's doorstep? And Jesus says, yeah, I think he's big enough to handle that. I think he's big enough to handle that. God allowed this suffering, Jesus says, but not without a purpose and not without a meaning. He allowed this suffering so that, there's verse 3 again, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you know why God allows suffering in your life? Because he wants to do a work in you that's so great to overcome that suffering that, that you can't take credit for it. That you can't just look back and say, well, look what I did. I, I was born a poor white boy, and look what, I was rags to riches. Don't we love to hear that on the political world today? Oh, this is, this is my story of how I came from nothing, and I'm just a self-made man or a self-made woman. God doesn't get glory for that kind of stuff. But God does get glory when we suffer. And he works in us to turn that suffering around for a positive thing. In this situation, Jesus wants to do the work of redemption, and he wants that, that, that redemption to be displayed in this man. He says, I, I, God allowed the suffering so that the works of God could be displayed through him. So if you want to blame somebody, Jesus says, just blame God. And some of you say, well, that's what I've been doing. I've been blaming God, and I'm still not over it yet. Okay? But by blaming God... You're actually revealing your own selfish, sinful heart. Listen close. By blaming God, you're revealing your selfish, sinful heart. It's a heart that believes that somehow God owes you a comfortable, pain-free life of your own making. That you have written out the fairy tale and now God just needs to poof and let it happen. That God owes you that somehow. This is what I deserve. By blaming God, we also reveal a heart that's lacking the faith to trust God's wisdom, to trust God's plan, to trust God's purpose. I can't see his hand inside the glove, so I'm just going to assume that he's not there. I'm just going to assume that he's fallen asleep, that he doesn't care, that he's just distant from me. 
I, I, I lack the faith to trust that somehow God can take bad things and bring about good. I, I, I doubt what Romans 8.28 says. I mean, I know others have quoted it, and I know that, that others claim it, but, but for me, that just doesn't work. That, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. No, that, that, that's, that's just a good cliche, but that's not, that's not reality. Well, you don't like, you lack the faith to believe that that is. And you believe that your plan is more perfect than God's plan. It also reveals a heart that desires its way more than it desires God's way. God, this is how I think life ought to unfold. Especially for me. I'm a good person. I do good for others. And I expect you to do good for me. And Lord, as long as it goes that way, we're going to be fine. But something goes wrong, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. Do you see the arrogance of that? And yet that's how many Christians today approach God. I'm on your team, God, as long as things are going good. But I tell you what, things get rough. I I may be looking for a trade. I may be looking for something different. It's a self-centered approach, not a God-centered approach. We see the same mistake being made. In, in several places in Scripture. But look at the book of Job, would you? Think about Job's story. Here's, here's a man that is righteous. He is walking with God. His children have parties, and he confesses for them, and he intercedes for them and offers sacrifices for them, and he is a holy and a righteous man. And in and, and the story of Job, Job loses everything except for his nagging wife and three crummy friends. And Job chooses to take the anger track. The Bible says Job grew angry with God, yet he did not sin. God, I don't deserve this. And and, and half the book is Job telling his friends, I don't deserve this. I've been good. You say you must have sinned. So you you got Job's friends taking this anger, Job taking this anger track, and guess what his friends take? The blame guilt track. Oh, Job, look. I'll give, I give you concrete proof, Job. If you would have just lived for God, if you, I don't know what your sin is because you're good at hiding it, but there's got to be some sin there, Job, because if you hadn't sinned, you'd be good like us. If you hadn't messed up, God wouldn't have taken all that stuff away, Job. Look, he didn't take our stuff away. So there's something wrong there. So you just need to get off by yourself, get, get off your high horse, and just be humble and confess that you screwed up. That's the story of Job. Same two responses that we see here with the disciples. It's got to be one or the other. It can't be God. This can't be God. And yet, what do we know from Scripture? It was God. It was. Does that just hit you like a ton of bricks? We we look at the story of Job and we go, man. Anger track, guilt track, and, and God says, no, it's neither one of those. It's, it's me. I, I want to get glory through Job. What does he say to Satan? He says, look, there's a guy there. You can take it all away, and he's still not going to turn his back on me. Why? Because I am working in him, and he's going to bring me glory. And, and Job does. But when God shows up at the end, and he exposes the faultiness of both of those views, he says, Job, where were you when I created the world? I didn't come to you and ask you how to do it. I did it. 
He looks at the friends and he goes, you're the worst friends in the whole world. My gosh, a guy's hurting and all you want to do is pile guilt on top of that? God says, listen, I'm God and I created you and I blessed you and I sustained you. And and guess what? I would like to use you. I would like to use you, Job, to help the millions and millions of people who are going to come after you and who are going to read your story and learn that if they just hold on to me, that I'll make things right. And he looks at Job and says, would that be all right? Would that be all right, Job? We go back to John chapter 9, this, this man born blind. And it's interesting to me that the only person in the story that's not complaining is the man born blind. He, he doesn't hold up his finger at Jesus and say, I spent all these years blind for what? He doesn't do that. He just listens. He obeys. He walks away to the pool of Siloam blind. And he comes back home seeing things he's never seen before. Jesus says he was born blind so that God's work of redemption could be displayed through him. Now, here's here's the kicker. Because the story, the, the, the purpose of the story was that God's work of redemption might be accomplished through him. Guess what? There's more to this story than physical blindness. Jesus is about to attack the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. The spiritual blindness of the world around him. In fact, Jesus says, we got to work while it's still day. we got to work while there's still time to get this work done because there's people all around us that are blind. This is not the only blind man in the crowd. There's a lot to be done, Jesus says. This story, this man's story, is pointing to a greater type of suffering a more devastating and deadly type of blindness, and that is a spiritual blindness that leads a person to death. It's a spiritual blindness that only can be corrected by the Savior. And by the way, it's a spiritual blindness that every one of us are born into. You say, that's not fair. That's not fair. You say, I'm I'm born into blindness? Yeah. Well, whose fault is that? There we go again. God wouldn't do that. Really? Well, tell this blind man that God wouldn't do that. We're born spiritually blind because spiritual blindness was not just this man's problem, but it's our problem. And it's a problem that cannot be fixed by sinful man. Don't you think that if this blind man could have invented something to take care of his blindness that he would have done so by now but the truth is he was totally dependent upon god to do what needed to be done he didn't go find jesus jesus found him he didn't recommend a cure he just listened to the cure that jesus had in mind and like this blind man we need jesus to heal our spiritual blindness He is the light of the world. We need his light to flood within us. We need his light to come upon us. We need for him to open up our eyes and let the light come in. This past week, I went and had an eye exam and and got to visit with my eye doctor. And I said, you know, tell me what you're looking at and what you're seeing. He showed me all these pictures and he says, here's where the light comes through. And here's all the nerves and here's all the sensory. And he starts explaining it all and pulls out this little model and pops things apart. And and I'm like, whoa, it's more than I asked for. But all right, this is it. But he says, this is what lets the light in. And create sight. 
And we talked about cataracts and how they get thick and yellowy and they don't let the light come through and you can't see and it's blurry. And Here's the thing, we need Jesus for his light to flood within us, for him to open our spiritual eyes so that light can come in and we can see reality. We can see what's going on inside of us and inside of our world. We need his light to come flooding in. We need his touch and his healing, not just for our physical problems. Those things, th- th- that's, those things will end one day. Every bit of your physical suffering is going to end one day. But spiritual suffering, if you're not a believer in Christ, it will go on and on and on eternally. We need for him to open our spiritual eyes and to show us his purpose for our pain. You see, guys, the problem of pain can't be solved apart from Christ. The answer is not to blame others or to blame myself. That's not the problem. That's not the solution. Seeing God's hand in our suffering is the solution. Some of you had terrible parents. Okay. So you're going to live the rest of your life just blaming everything upon them? Are you going to come to Jesus and say, look, I need you to put me back together. (laughs) This, this, This rocked my world. This messed me up. I need you to put me back together. I need you to fix what's broken inside of me. And in coming to Jesus and allowing him to show us his purpose in our, in, our, in our suffering may not remove the suffering from our lives, but it may help us to deal with that suffering and open our eyes to its purpose. Another story in Scripture in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. You remember his story? Sold by his brothers into slavery because they were jealous of him. Worked his way up into Potiphar's house to where he is the top guy. Potiphar's wife notices him, makes advances to him, accuses him of raping her, and he's thrown in prison for years and years and years. And even those he helps while he's in prison forget about him and, 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 and just leave him there to rot. Years of his life wasted in suffering and pain and abandonment. And yet, what was it Joseph said to his brothers when they were finally reunited? You remember those words? You meant this for my harm. But God meant this for my good. God put me here ahead of you to save the nation. What was Joseph saying? I see a purpose in my suffering. And therefore, I can deal with that without blaming you or blaming myself. We need for God to help us to see the purpose in our pain, the purpose in our suffering, because until God shows that to us and helps us to see that, we're going to continue to look to blame somebody. We're going to blame others, we're going to blame ourselves, or we're going to blame God. But until God allows us to see the purpose of our suffering, then we will not be able to process that and to move through it. Another person in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul had this thorn in the flesh and he approaches God three different times and begs God to take away. Lord, I could be so much more effective, God, if you would just take away this thorn in the flesh. If you would just free me from that, whatever it is, if you could just take that away from me, Lord, I could do so much more for the kingdom of God. And God says, Saul, you would become prideful. So to keep you from becoming conceited, I've placed this thorn in your flesh. Because if you're prideful, you're not, you're not useful. 
And then God says, my grace, Paul, will be sufficient for your every need. And my power will be proven through your weakness. Isn't there another way? Come on, God. Isn't Isn't there a better way that we can do that? And then we look at Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? If there ever was a person who did not deserve to suffer, who did not deserve to hurt, who did not deserve to feel abandoned on a cross, it would be Jesus. Perfect Son of God who never once hurt anybody, who never once sinned against anybody, who never once disobeyed even the smallest thing that God asked him to do. And yet his life wasn't free of suffering. Scripture said he was made perfect. He was made mature through his sufferings. And Scripture says that it was by his stripes, his suffering, that we've been made whole. You see, we, we, we tend to, to look at suffering in this tiny little narrow thing of just me. Why me? Why, why, why me? But we live in a world full of sin and suffering. We live in a world that, that, that suffering is a part of it until Jesus comes back and, 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 and delivers us from that. It's, it's a part of this. But Jesus didn't deserve what he got. But Scripture says that what he did in the midst of his suffering... Even as he sweat drops of blood, he entrusted himself to the Father. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So even as he's sweating these drops of blood, he's humbly submitting himself to the suffering that awaited him. Not all pain and suffering is the direct result of your sin or someone else's sin in your life. Sometimes it's through our struggles that God chooses to carry out his redemptive work. Sometimes, guys, it's in our suffering that God chooses to bring us to himself. My suffering is so great I can't deny it anymore. It's so great I can't just dismiss it and move on and press through. It's so great that I don't know where to go and where to turn. And and it's in those moments of great suffering that I find God and his grace to be so real and so deep. Where else could I go to find help and healing? So it's in my suffering that I run to him. We hear all the time about jailhouse conversions. People get thrown in jail and all of a sudden they get religion. And while that may be true for some and not for others, here's the thing for all of us. It's when we suffer that God gets our attention. It's when we suffer that we find his grace to be real and to be true. Suffering is never, ever fun. But it can be productive and good if we'll take it to God. And here's my understanding. As best I understand it, there is only one person who can take and bring redemption out of suffering. And that's God. Only God can bring redemption through suffering. That's how big he is. That's how powerful he is. That's how loving and gracious he is. And that, my friend, is the story of the gospel. That through the greatest suffering of all times, 
God brought redemption. And so through this blind man, Jesus says the purpose is this, that God might do the work of redemption through his story. We'll see the second part of this next week as we look at the response of the Pharisees and even the response of this man's parents. The response of the Jews. Oh, maybe he wasn't the blind guy after all. Maybe that's his twin. But here's the deal. God brings redemption through suffering. So it leaves us with a couple questions this morning. And that is, have you brought your suffering to God? Can, can you trust that the mud God is making right now is a part of the process that he's chosen to give you new life. Think about this. It's kind of a weird analogy. Jesus hawks a loogie and spits on the ground. And then he makes some mud, and then we use the term he anointed his eyes. I can think of a lot of other things I would rather be anointed by. Can you trust that the mud he's making is a part of the process? It's interesting to me. There's a play on words in this that we, that we miss if we're not careful. But listen, let me, let me just, when, when you're studying the Bible, let me encourage you to do this, okay, real quick. And I'm not going to charge you extra for this, okay? When you study the Bible and, and you're reading and there's this phrase and you're going, why did they put that in there? He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, parentheses, which means sent. Why do we need to know that? Why do I need to know what the meaning of the term Salome is? Here's, here's what I think. Here's, here's the meaning of that. Jesus sent him to sent. He sent him to sent. Sounds weird. But Jesus has just said above that I am the sent one. You've you got to get to the one who was sent to fix your problem. And that's Jesus. Jesus says, the Father has sent me. And he sends this man, not to just any old pool, but to the pool called sent. Jesus was the sent one who was sent to give sight to the blind. Not just physically, but spiritually. Here's another question. Have you lived blinded by the false assumption that God somehow owes you an easy life? Think about that. Do you live under the false assumption that somehow God owes you an easy life? Because if you believe that, you're going to spend a lot of time angry at God and, 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 and wanting to put the blame on everybody else. If you think that God owes you, this God that created you, who sustains you, who gives you every breath that you take, if you think he owes you something, because you're good in your own eyes, then you're going to stay angry an awful lot. It leaves us tangled up in blame and anger and bitterness, guilt and shame when we fall short. So what we need to do is what this man did, and that is to go get washed in the pool of scent, the pool of the one who was sent. Get to the one who was sent to fix this problem, which is Jesus. He came to give sight to the blind and to restore what sin had
and destroyed. So I think today, there's no better day than today to let go of our anger and our blame and our bitterness, to shed the guilt and the shame that we've carried, and to see clearly, Jesus says, all the suffering that you're going through and that you've been through in life has brought you to a place that God might display his redemptive work in you. Use your story. This is where I was. And this is where God found me. And this is where God's taken me. But you don't do so with an accusing finger. You don't do so with a, with a blame game. You do so by saying, this is the glory of God. This is what God can do with a messed up person like me. And let him take all that suffering and display his redemptive work in you. Let's allow the Lord to redeem our suffering, to use it by taking it to Jesus and saying to him, you are my only hope. My only hope is in you. Let's pray.